Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Hey, it's great to see you uh, out here, whether you're in the, in the uh, worship center or you're out on the patio. Uh, my name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here as well, and it's just really great to be with you today. We've got a lot going on this week. As uh, Scott just mentioned, uh, we're going to be going to our time of teaching in just a second. If you haven't reached inside your program and taken out that, that uh, green, uh, green and white note sheet, you'll definitely want to take that out. We're, we're going to be uh, kicking off this, uh, this time of teaching with some prayer for our service, but I also want to be praying for our VBS this week. I'm really excited about that, this opportunity that we have uh, this, uh, to, to pour into the lives of our students at a very tumultuous time in our culture that up against kind of unprecedented uh, kind of ungodly godly uh, pressure. And so this is such an incredible opportunity for us to invest in our kids. Just want to pray the Holy Spirit would be really using this time to write his truths on the heart of our kids. And then also, uh, even right now, I think it's at 9.30 a.m., the 11 people from the Tanzania trip are out in the parking lot out there. Uh, they're getting ready to, to, uh, to fly off uh, first to Amsterdam and uh, then to uh, near Kilimanjaro and then, and then on to uh, Tanzania. And so uh, we want to pray for them. So as we, we kick off this time of teaching, uh, we're going to ask the Lord to bless this time uh, to be with us, but also want to pray for these two uh, important kingdom ministries this week. So if you'll join me. So Father, we come in the name of King Jesus. We just acknowledge uh, his lordship over creation that he rules. And you have called us as uh, partners in your kingdom to join with you to unleash your power here on earth through prayer. And so, Lord, we come today as, as your church, and we pray, first of all, for this uh, incredible opportunity we have to invest in the lives of our children this week. We just pray that for, for all the, the teachers, the volunteers, the helpers, we pray for each of the students. Please pray your Holy Spirit would come and enlighten their eyes. Lord, even at this early age, you begin to write your law on their hearts, who they are, who you are, the path to life. And God, we also pray then for these 11 uh, these 11 men and women from Rocky Peak who are going out to share the message of Jesus in a place where that message has never gone before. And we thank you for the way, that incredible way you've opened up doors for us to share the gospel in Tanzania and these unreached people groups in the last six years, the way you've moved. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be on them. We pray for their protection. We pray for their health. Uh, as they go. We pray that you would protect them uh, physically. We pray you give them the words uh, to say, the message to share. And we pray for the hearts of these people there. Lord, we think of your word where it says that the Lord opened the hearts to receive the gospel. And so we just pray that you would be opening hearts, that a church would be planted, that new births would be registered in your kingdom, uh, and that we would see the church begin to flourish in this area. We pray this uh, as we enter a time of teaching. We pray now, Lord, that you would be with us, and during this time, your Holy Spirit would be opening your word to each of our eyes, and that we would know the next step in our journey with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today uh, on, a, uh, on a beautiful, uh, crisp autumn evening, and uh, the fall has come early this year to this mountain town. And uh, so soon they'll be, bump, uh, they'll be bundling up and going out in the city. But this is a very special day. It's the start of a holiday season, and it's one of their favorite seasons of the year, and they've all been looking forward to it. Uh, Mom's been in the kitchen all day cooking, and Dad has been in the backyard building the shelter uh, this afternoon. But uh, as, the, 
as the sun goes down and the evening comes on, that the family bundles up and they head out into these narrow, windy, dark city streets that are normally this time of night fairly unpopulated. But, uh, but on this night, the city is full of tourists from around the world who've come to celebrate this holiday season. And as they, they head out and down through the, the dark city streets, their hearts are full of anticipation. Their two young children can't wait to get there. They begin to, to think, to visualize, to think of the, the, the sounds of singing, the, the scenes of dancing that are gonna be taking place. But most of all, as this family approaches their destination, they're all looking forward to that moment of the lighting of the lamps. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in the last about six months. It's called Signs of Path to Life. And for those of you who are brand new, whether you're here in the worship center or you're out on the patio, a uh, special welcome. This is a series about Jesus. Uh, it's an in-depth look at the life uh, teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and friends, a man we call John or the Apostle John. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, we, we've watched as Jesus has taken his disciples from the north of the country, from an area we call the Galilee, uh, where he's grown up and where he's done most of his ministry. Once again, he's traveled south for one of the three great annual pilgrim feasts where people from all over the world come to Jerusalem to celebrate at the tabernacle. It's called the, the Feast of Tabernacles, or, or the, at the temple. It's called the Feast of, or the Festival of Tabernacles. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, you have your apps, just go ahead and open up. We're going to pick up the story today uh, in Jerusalem in chapter 8 and verse 12. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called the Festival of Tabernacles. Or the, and uh, and as, you're, as you're turning there, let me, let me set it up. So, so this, uh, this Festival of Tabernacles, as we've been learning the last few weeks with, with Tim and with Dre, that it's one of the most important uh, festivals, feast times of the year, it would last a week. Uh, one of the most popular feasts in, uh, in Israel, and it celebrated how God had preserved the nation of Israel, how he provided for them in the wilderness when they first came out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, and then came into the wilderness, and now for 40 years, God provided for them. Uh, and there, so there were many different ceremonies that had built up over time to, uh, to remember this important time in their history. For example, uh, that families would often build shelters uh, behind their homes or if they lived out in a rural area out in fields where they could actually camp out as a family for a week to, to remember that time in the wilderness where they were forced to camp out. Uh, in, the temple, in the temple itself in Jerusalem, um, there was uh, uh, several different ceremonies. One was the water ceremony. Remember how God provided Israel water in the wilderness. And there was this beautiful ceremony where the high priest would lead this procession of priests uh, singing uh, uh, and worshiping as they go down to the pool of Siloam. And for those of you who've been to Israel, you remember where that pool is. And then it would go 900 steps up to Temple Mount and to a special altar there where the high priest would take this water that had been taken from the pool of Siloam in a golden pitcher and pour it out over the sacrifice to remember how God had provided for them, but also to pray that God 
God would bless them with rains this year for their crops. Well, one of the most important ceremonies that happened during the feast, our, our festival of tabernacles, and in fact, it happened every night, was the lighting of the lamps. And so what would happen is, uh, first of all, to picture this, we're going to need to use our imagination a little bit, all right? So let's picture this. Uh, Some of you will remember this, but the temple complex in Israel was huge. The the Jerusalem temple was the largest temple in the Roman Empire. Uh, The temple grounds themselves, the campus, was, uh, was 36 acres of land. Uh, It was surrounded by this massive stone wall. So it felt more like a fortress, like a military fortress than what you'd think of like a church campus. Uh, Of course, inside there was the temple itself. And uh, the temple was 15 stories tall. It was made of white stone. It was covered with gold on top. So the visitors said that when you'd approach Jerusalem, you would see the temple standing out in the skyline like a, like a snow-capped mountain glistening on a, on a winter day. Uh, and inside this fortress there that could hold over 100,000 people during feast times, that during this huge, for, and inside there would be a series of courtyards, open courtyards, uh, open air courtyards, that would, go, that would become progressively restrictive as you move towards the temple. Who could go there? So the, the outermost courtyard was called the Court of the Gentiles. This is where anyone, even Gentiles, could come to pray. This is where Jesus, remember he, when he drove out the money changers and all, that was in the Court of the Gentiles? But then you, as you move closer, you moved into area that only Jews could go, and the first area that you, you, would, you would come to was called the Court of the Women. And it was called that because any Jew, man, woman, or child could go there. And so um, in this court of the women is where during the Feast of of Tabernacles, that the priests would build these four huge light stands. And on top, they'd have these huge bowls of oil. And then they would take some of their sacred undergarments from the priests that were, uh, could have been used, uh, and they would, they would uh, weave them into wicks. And in these huge bowls, they would put these, uh, these wicks, and then every night during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light these huge um, they'd climb up these tall ladders and there'd be the lighting of the bowls of oil. And when that would happen, the light would radiate out into the city, bouncing off the 15-story white temple and just show this beautiful light. And remember, in a day and age when there was no electricity, there were no street lights, and it was magnificent. Um, and this was to symbolize how God led them through the wilderness with a fire by night. And so... Um, you may remember that, that as we step into the scene today, this is the scene we step into. And, and this, is the, this is the story that we started the day with about this family that's so excited because the week of celebration is about to begin. The father has built this shelter in their backyard where the kids are so excited they're going to camp out for the week. Mom's been working hard in the kitchen all day getting things ready. And uh, this day after dinner... They're going to walk through the dark, windy, narrow streets of Jerusalem full of pilgrims. And they're being looking forward because what's going to happen after the lighting of the lamps? That there's the godly men of the city, 
uh, the Levites, who are like temple workers, are gonna begin to sing and dance in the temple courts until the wee hours of the morning. And the family cannot wait to get there. And so that's the scene. This is the scene that we're stepping into today. We're in the middle of the week of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus has come down. Remember, he's already given some very controversial teaching. Uh, if, in the, a few weeks ago, we saw the crowd is very divided about him, whether he's the Messiah or not. Remember, the religious leaders are out to get him. At the end of chapter 7, they've already sent uh, the temple police to arrest them, but they've come back empty-handed because no one speaks like this man. And yet, into this dangerous setting, Jesus is going to walk today into the court of the women where every night these huge bowls are, are lit, and he's going to begin to teach and that's where we're picking up the story in chapter 8 and verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's jump in. So in this setting, Jesus, when he spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. In this place where every night the oil lamps are lit to remember how Yahweh has been with them uh, to lead them by fire by night, Jesus says, I and the light of the world. And whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, just like Israel followed Yahweh through the wilderness. But they will have the light of life. And so notice, this is a huge claim. Later on, as we dig deeper into this claim and uh, bring up some of the background from Israel's history to help us understand this claim, you'll see it's even bigger than it might appear. But notice from the very beginning, he's not saying that I am a light. He's saying I am the light. I'm the ultimate light of the world. Quite the claim, we'll come back to it later. So the Pharisees, or the religious leaders, are gonna challenge him once again, and they're gonna say, here you are, you're appearing as your own witness, like in a courtroom scene. Your testimony is not valid. And so what are they, what are they saying? Well, in Jewish law, it was required that when you made a big claim or when you brought an accusation against someone else, that it was not enough just to have one witness. You had to have at least two eyewitnesses. If you notice on your note sheet, there's a reference, uh, just a little references to Deuteronomy 17 and 19. It kind of spells this out. And so what they're saying to Jesus is you're making these huge claims about yourself but, but your, your, your testimony is not valid because you're the only one making these claims. You need more witnesses. Now, this is interesting because back in chapter five, if you uh, remember back there, when Jesus was in Jerusalem on a previous visit, they had brought up this same issue. And Jesus had said, wait a second, I, I have witnesses. John the Baptist was my witness. Uh, the very works, the supernatural signs I perform, those are my witness. My father is my, so he's already had this conversation with them before, um, but this time he's gonna take a different tack in the way he answers it. And so he says in verse 14, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid because I know where I come from and where I am going. And so this is something we're going to see Jesus is going to say over and over in John. He's going to claim that he has come from the Father, returning back to the Father. And he says, hey, even if I'm the only one telling you this, it's the truth. Because I know who I am. I know where I've come from. I know where I'm going. 
but you have no idea where I've come from. So you have these ideas of who I am. And uh, remember back earlier in chapter seven, they had said, hey, how could he be a prophet? No prophet comes out of Galilee. They had all these kind of uh, misconceptions about who he was. And he says in verse 15, you judge by human standards. In other words, in your, your evaluation of a Messiah, you're looking for the wrong thing. And I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge in the sense of making judgments or decisions, statements about truth, but if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. And of course, this is what he claims over and over, that he and the Father are one, uh, and that to see him is to see the Father. And, And so he says, I'm standing with the Father in this. He says, in your own law, and this is what we just referred to in Deuteronomy, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. He said, you only need two witnesses. Well, I'm the one who testifies for myself, and the other witness is my father. There you go, bang, you know, two, you got two. And uh, they said, well, where is your father? And so they're still misunderstanding him. And he says, you do not know my, me or my father. He said, if you knew me, you would also know the Father. And so it's something Jesus constantly is saying that, that to know him is to know the Father, to know the Father is to know him. So if you don't recognize him, it means you don't really know the Father. You, you may be the religious leaders of, of Israel, but you don't know God. And so he said, if you knew me, you'd know the Father also. And then Ketchum says, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Now, we know from history exactly where this was. This was either right in the court of the women where those lamps were lit every night, or it was right next to it. So it was right in that vicinity. And so it says, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. He said, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And so as we saw at the end of chapter 7, they'd actually sent the police to arrest him who'd come back empty-handed. And here he is right back in the center, right in the center of Jewish power in the court of the women, teaching boldly, making these claims, and yet no one is arresting him, no one is seizing him. And John says it's because his hour had not yet come. Now, I want you to notice that. You may want to underline that in your Bible. The hour has not yet come. This is a very famous phrase that's going to see it over and over in the Gospel of, of John. Uh, and it, it, it refers to the time of Jesus' death. Like everything is leading up to his Do you remember back in chapter 2 where uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, came and told them, hey, they've got a problem. They run out of wine. This is the first time Jesus says it. Uh, why are you bringing this? My hour has not yet come. So catch this. There's going to be seven hour statements in the Gospel of John. Just like there are seven signs, we'll see later today, we'll talk about another seven, but there are seven hour statements about when there, because everything is leading up to the hour where Jesus will be the Lamb of God taking on the sin of the world and through that sacrifice and return to his Father, okay? So that's the passage. Uh, Jesus is in the temple. He's, he's kind of marched back into the place where they've been trying to arrest him. He's right there in the, the, the court of the women where that night and every night this important symbol is going to happen. He's lighting these huge lamps that represent God himself being their light in the wilderness. And in that context, he says, I am the light 
of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And so what I want to do today is I want to break, break down that statement, that claim of Jesus. I want to highlight two, uh, two important principles, one about who Jesus is and about one, the second, why Jesus has come, uh, and then end by asking an important question for our life. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Signs the Light of the World. And uh, so let's start with this, with, uh, this first point, which is really a point about who, uh, that John is making about who Jesus is. And so let's fill in the blank. So the blank goes like this. This is one audacious claim. <laughs> this claim to be the light of the world, this is uh, Jesus kind of his next audacious claim. Now, I don't know if you know what the word audacious means. I looked it up to make sure that it was a good word for me to be using. <laughs> and, and so this is, what, this is how the dictionary defines audacious, as bold, as daring, and fearless. What I'm saying today is when you, when you, when you know the context of, of John chapter 7 and 8, what's happening, uh, the claims that have been made about that Jesus has made, the, the religious leaders looking for him, trying to be arrested, for him to come into the court of the women in the heart of the temple uh, on the, in the week where they, they light the lamps, symbolizing Yahweh, and to say, I am the light of the world. This is a bold, uh, this is a daring, it's a fearless, it's an audacious claim. And to understand how big this claim is, we need a little bit of background because probably most of us here, some of us are, but most of us are not Jewish, or even if we are Jewish, perhaps I'm not grown up in a really religious Jewish home, but this statement of Jesus has huge uh, Jewish background. And so I want to take you on just a quick kind of flyby of the Old Testament. And there in your note sheet, I want you to skip the first two verses that are there. We'll come back to them later. But pick up with the third one, which should be the Genesis passage. And so let's talk about, because here's what I want you to catch. This metaphor of light, I am the light of the world. This metaphor of light is a very powerful metaphor that's used to describe Yahweh or what Yahweh does uh, in the Old Testament. That, that Yahweh is the ultimate source of light. He's the light in our life. And so when Jesus makes this statement, he's tying into some deep Hebrew roots here of, of what this means in Israel. And so let's just run through these passages. So the first passage is from Genesis chapter 1. And of course, this is the, the uh, creation account. And we're told that in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens, he created the earth, but that when he created them, that they were formless, they were empty. And uh, the, the author says that, uh, and he says that, the, that the, the, the earth was formless uh, and that darkness was over the face of the waters, completely dark. And into that darkness on day one of the creation account, the very first thing that God says is what? Let there be light. And from that point on, he is the source of light in our darkness. When we get to the next passage in Exodus, when the nation of Israel is coming out of slavery, they're marching through unknown territory in the wilderness, and we're told just that we're celebrating today in the Feast of Tabernacles, we've been talking about, that, that God led them by a pillar of, of uh, Pillar a cloud, a pillar a cloud by day and by fire by night. Look what it says. By day the Lord, and remember what's Lord all caps? What does that mean? 
Yahweh good. So by, uh, for those who are new, um, when the NIV uh, or many translations, when they, when they put the Lord in all caps, what that's saying is that in the original Hebrew, that this is the personal name of God, Yahweh, the I am who I am. And so uh, by the day, Yahweh went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire. So notice it wasn't just a pillar of fire, that Yahweh was going ahead of them in this pillar of fire to give them light so they could travel by day or by night. And so this becomes a powerful symbol of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And so when we get to Psalm 27, one of my favorite Psalms, David is in a t- describing a time of great danger in his life, and he says, the Lord, Yahweh, is my light and my salvation. He, he's the one who lightens my darkness, the times of danger, my, he's my light and he's my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? And when you get to the prophet Isaiah, uh, God is speaking to the Messiah. And in this passage, the Messiah is the one we call the servant of the Lord or the servant of Yahweh. And so, so Yahweh is speaking to Messiah and he says, I will also make you, talking to Messiah, a light for the Gentiles so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This prophetic statement that when Messiah comes, it's not enough to bring back the nation of Israel, but he will be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. And then uh, and one of the last prophets of the Old Testament, prophet named um, Zechariah, when he's prophesying about when the kingdom of God comes and when the day of the Lord comes, the day of Yahweh, which would be both a day of vengeance and a day of salvation, depending which side of things you're on. But he says, it will be a unique day, a day known only to Yahweh with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be what? Light, which is a picture of when the kingdom comes, there will no longer be darkness. There will no longer be evil. There will no longer be distress. And so what I want you to catch is that when Jesus stands up in the, feast, in the festival of tabernacles, in the place where these huge oil lamps are being lit every night that light up the whole city that represent Yahweh leading his people through the darkness in, by, by the fire of light, that when Jesus stands up and makes his claim, I am the light of the world. This is a huge claim. He's making a claim that really only God could make. Yahweh is the light of the world, right? I am. And what's interesting is this is the second I am statement that he's made in the Gospel of John. So we haven't talked about this yet. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to make several I am statements. I am fill in the blank, right? Guess how many of them are going to be? Seven. seven. Yeah, just amazing how it all works out. Uh, yeah, he's going to make seven statements. I am. So we've already seen the first one. In fact, there on your note sheet in this section, uh, back in John 6, I am the bread of life. And whoever, whoever eats of this bread will never go hungry Uh, I'm the one that satisfies the deepest thirst or deepest hunger of the human heart. Um, That was his first I am. And of course, whenever we hear I am, we think of Yahweh, right? The, The one who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Well, who should I say sent me? Say, I am sent you. I am who I am. I can't be defined by anyone else but by myself. I am who I am. 
And so Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the one who alone can satisfy the deepest hunger of the human heart and sustain your life forever. And here we have our second one. I am the light of the world. Now, this is interesting because back in the intro to John, remember in those first 18 verses, John introduced Jesus to us, remember? And he, he, he gave us these 18 verses where he introduces who Jesus is and he uses this epic language. And what I've told you over and over in this series is that first 18, verse, 18 verses, that intro, is like a key to understanding the whole gospel. Because what he's saying there is he's introducing kind of like an attorney in a, in a new court case. He's the big picture narrative of where this story is going. And one of the things I've told you is that when John introduces us to Jesus, he's not making this stuff up. He's just summarizing what Jesus revealed over his ministry. I want to give you another example of that. So keep your finger here in John 8. Go back to John chapter 1. And let's look how John starts this gospel. So in John chapter 1, in verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was. Right, so right from the beginning, John's making this incredible claim that there's a time and a place when this, this God who created the universe entered into creation. And it says, he was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. He's a creator God. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. But then look what he says next. In him was what? Life. And you have to circle it. Okay? Life with a capital L. In him was life and that life was what? The light of mankind. You see, this is where, this is where John got that from these claims of Jesus that he is the one who's come into this dark world to light it up. And that leads us to number two, okay? So the first principle is that it's about Jesus and who he is making these God-sized claims, claims that only God could really make. I mean, these claims, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, like C.S. Lewis said, anyone who makes these claims has really taken away our options of who the person is. They're either a liar, they're a lunatic, a crazy person, or they are the Lord. Like there's really not a lot of options. Anyone says, I am the light. So catch this, it's not like I am a light. It's not like someone's saying, I am enlightened, and I can show you the path. They're saying, I am the ultimate light of the world. I am the source of light. A claim that only someone claiming to be God could make. Now, so this leads to number two, though, and the question is, so, so why did this light of the world come? Like, wh what's the whole point? And Jesus says, or the, num the number two point goes like this, Jesus came to light up our lives. This is the claim. He's claiming that we all are born into a dark world. In fact, we're all part of that darkness. And the reason he has come is to show us a path to life, to light up the path to life. So for example, uh, there in your note sheet, this is what he said today. I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. So as Jesus says, this is why I've come to light it up for you. Now, I don't know how, how many of you have ever done any night hiking. I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But as many of you know, this is something that is often part of my life. And uh, sometimes I'll just 
Uh, usually it's not planned. Usually it's, uh, it's been a while since I've done this, a few months, but, uh, but I'll just wake up in the middle of the night. Often I'll feel like the Lord's woken me up and I'll, I'll go hiking in the middle of the night, right? And, uh, and so usually I'm hiking uh, out in the, like the Rocky Peak Trail areas, um, different trails in the Rocky Peak Trail, but up in that area. And, uh, and so it's kind of spooky, you know, it's kind of spooky, like three in the morning, hiking out there by yourself, you know, and you see these green eyes coming out of bushes, and you're wondering, okay, uh, you know, deer, uh, wildcat, uh, mountain lion, like, like what, you know, it's a little spooky, but uh, anyway, so one of my favorite times, though, when I'm out hiking like that, is uh, I've been out hiking for a while, and all of a sudden, um, the light begins to change as the sun begins to rise. Now, when the sun begins to rise here, at least when you're hiking there, you can't see the sun rising. The, the light begins to change long before you see the sun because it has to come over the mountains. But you begin to see, and at first you wonder even if your eyes are playing, has it started yet? Because it's even hard to see. But, but as that light begins to rise, the landscape begins to emerge. Like up until that time, usually I'll have a headlamp or have a flashlight and just see a little area in front of you. You can't really see the make out of the land, the landscape, but, but as that sun begins to rise behind the mountains, even though you can't see the sun, you can, be, you can begin to see the lay of the land. You begin to see the boulders. You begin to see the bushes. You begin to, like if something's gonna attack you, you can actually see it now, right? <laughs> That's why I love it. Uh, and so I think this is the picture that Jesus is using, that we're all born into a dark world. We're all trying to find our way. We're all trying to make sense. Like, how, how, do, I, how do I make sense of life? What's the right path do I take? Is it this way? Is it that? Was my parents' path or friends' path or my professor's path? Is it a social media path? Is this YouTube path? Like, what's the way to life? And Jesus says, the reason I've come is to light it up and to show you the path to life. Now, if you've been here in this series, you know that this is over and over again, Jesus says this. He uses different metaphors to communicate this same truth that he's come to give us life, come to give us our life back, life with a capital L, the life we were created to live. And so he's used different metaphors, right? Like he's used the metaphor of being born again. You receive new life, John chapter three, by being born again, the life of God. He, he's used the metaphor of, of water of life that alone can satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart. So we saw that in John chapter four and John chapter seven, your rivers of living water will flow out of you. We saw it in John chapter six, the bread of life, this, that he is the one that can satisfy the deepest hunger of the human heart and give us a life that will last forever. But today we come to the next metaphor. And it's one of my favorites, the light of life. He says that, that whoever follows me will no longer be walking in the dark. I'll lead them to a new path. They'll be able to see how the landscape of life, how, who I am, who, who, who God is, who I am, the path that leads to successful life. And it's interesting because Jesus will come back to this metaphor again in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he takes it even farther. And this is the last week of his life. It's right before he's arrested. And he says to the crowd, 
believe in the light. Uh, in the Greek, uh, trust in the light. Um, we would say here at Rocky Peak, listen and follow the light. Trust me, right? So believe in the light while you have the light, you know, before he's arrested, so that you may become what? Children. So now he's taking it to a new level. And he's saying not only has he come to show us the path to life, but that when we trust in him, when we listen to him, when we follow him, that something happens, we actually go through a transformation project and we become like the light. We become like Jesus. We become like the light of the world. We become children of light. And so this imagery of light and darkness becomes very important as we go through our, uh, as we reach out into the New Testament. So for example, there in your note sheet, one of my favorite passages is from Ephesians chapter five, where, where Paul is writing to the Christ followers in the, in the major city of Ephesus, and he says, you know, you were once darkness. So in other words, before you came to Jesus, you weren't just in the dark, you were part of the dark. You, you were darkness. He says, but now you are light in the Lord. Something has changed at the core of your being. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Something has happened. At the core of your being, you're no longer darkness. At the core, you are light because of your connection with the Lord. So he said, so we need to live as children of light. And then he defines, well, what does that mean, to live as children of light? He says, well, the fruit of the light consists in all these three things, of goodness, righteousness, and truth. What does it look like to be a child of light? It means to walk in what is good. Truly good in the deepest sense of the word. What is right and, and what is true. In fact, many times I will, you, you'll hear me say this in my teaching. I'll talk about uh, we need to follow whatever is good, what is right, what is true. And over the years, you may have, you, that may become something, you may recognize that language. And it really comes from this passage. That, that this is what it means to be a child of the light. That we're growing, we're being transformed, that we're, we're we're, we're uh, discovering what is good, what is right, and what is true in the deepest sense of the word. And he says, and what it means is also to, to find out what pleases the Lord. So it's an ongoing journey as we, we follow the light. We're learning more and more what pleases the Lord. And he says, but have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, all right? And so, we, so we've laid the foundation now. We've laid the foundation for where we're going to go. We've got these two big picture principles that, that Jesus is the light of the world, this audacious claim. He's the source of light, but also this claim that the reason he's come is to lead us to life, life with the capital L, uh, and uh, that he says that if we will listen and follow him, that we will actually be transformed. We'll not only know the path to life, that we will be transformed as we follow him by the light. We will become like him in the process, right? So that's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the big picture principles. Now, what I wanna do is kind of apply it to our life, put it, put it on the bottom shelf. And so there in your note sheet, you have a, a question that we're gonna ask to help do this. So it says, sign's the key question. And so it's a very simple question, but it's an extremely profound question. And the question goes like this, how are you responding to the light? So right now in your life, that we all have different levels of light or enlightenment. Right? When it comes to the truth and where we're at with our relationship with Jesus and so on. But the question is, how are you responding to the light that you have right now in your life? 
There's a great verse in Proverbs, one of my favorite verses uh, in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 4, and uh, the, the writer Solomon says, the path of the righteous, and of course that's what we're talking about here, uh, is, is like the morning sun shining ever brighter till the full light of day. So just like when I'm out hiking, that sun begins to come up, it just keeps on coming, and pretty soon you can see the sun over the mountains, and now pretty soon it's, it's going up to its full, to its full arc, and, and so he says the path of the righteous is like that, that there's an, a, there's an ongoing increasing light in their life. And he says, but the way of the, um, the wicked is like deep darkness. They don't, they don't know what makes them stumble. They're, they're still kind of living their lives in the dark and can't figure it out. And so one of the marks of a, what we call here at Rocky Peak, a passionate Christ follower is, is there a person that is constantly moving into more light in their life? They're constantly discovering what is good and right and true at deeper levels. They're being transformed by that process. It's like the path of the righteous is, is working out in their life. Now, it's interesting because earlier in John's gospel, uh, John helps us understand this metaphor of light and dark very early on. And he says that there are two basic responses that we can have when the light breaks in our life, when new light breaks in our life. And I, wanna, I want to go back there. Um, this is the, in context, this is where he just, he's just said that, that God so loved the world that he gave his son, so whoever believes in him, trusts him, follows him, will have eternal life. Um, but he goes on to say that not everyone will respond to that, um, and then he goes, he says, this is, he kind of summarizes it here. He says, light has come into the world. So we, we've seen that today. The light of the world has come, right? Uh, light, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light. And the reason is their deeds were evil, right? So if you're doing something wrong, you don't want someone to turn on the light and expose what you're doing. You'd rather stay in the darkness. And John says, this is the situation of the human race, that, that light came into the world, but most people didn't respond to that light. They wanted to turn from the light, run from the light, because they weren't ready to be changed. They weren't ready to be transformed. And he says, so everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed, but whoever lives by the truth, remember the, the light is all, it's good, right, and true. So whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So he says there's two different responses, that when the light shows up, two basic responses. One is to, to, uh, to turn away from the light, reject the light, because it's, it's revealing that what we're doing is evil, and we don't want to face that. We would rather live in the land of denial or in the land of rationalization. We're not ready to change. We're not ready, so we're gonna turn away from the light, and of course, as we turn away, the light gets darker. Or uh, there's a person who can turn towards the light, and they can move towards that light and let the light reveal their, the evil in their life, what is not good and right and true, and be transformed by that, um, so that they can enter into this life that Jesus has come to give us. So, two responses, right? Turn away from the light, turn towards the light. Now, this is true on a macro level. Uh, it's true that every one of us has to decide what we do with Jesus and his claims. Like, do we turn towards the light? We come into the light. We ask him to forgive our sin, to cleanse us to change us, transform us by the supernatural work of his Holy Spirit? 
or we're gonna reject Jesus, reject his light, turn away. So, so everyone has to make that kind of macro decision. Like we didn't follow Jesus or not. But here's what I want you to catch. Is that even after we've given our lives to Jesus, we still have to make this decision every day of our life. Because here's the thing. Jesus is the light of the world. And what that means is he's always illumining our darkness. It's not like we just come to Jesus and we, we first, he illumines our darkness. We realize, wow, I've been living in sin and evil and, and I need to turn from that. that. That's where the journey starts. But, but catch this, that journey never ends. That Jesus is always, as the light of the world, illumining our darkness. And when he does, we always have to make a decision. Do I embrace that reality that he's just revealed? Do I turn from that evil? Do I turn to him? Do I let him transform me? Or do I reject that insight because I, I don't want to deal with it? I'm not ready to deal with it. I'm not ready to give it up. And I tell you something, this issue of how we respond to the light if it's not the most important spiritual principle of life, it's right up there. Because it's, this determines how much life we have. It determines how much transformation we have. That if, if we're a person that gets in the habit of responding to the light and moving towards the light, that what it means is we're on a path of transformation where we will increasingly experience the life Jesus died to give us, we'll experience his joy, his peace, his transformation. Our, our life will be transformed to what's right and true and good, but to the extent that we ex ignore the light, we stop our growth process, and we don't change, and we don't experience this life, this living water that he's come to give us. And so you say, well, how does, that, how does that look, you know, when he turns on the light? Well, it can be in any area of our life. It could be in a character area. Like he may expose the light in the area of our integrity. There's an area of integrity, whether it's truth-telling or promise-keeping or responsibility. It could be in the area of our work ethic. It could be in the area of our kind of attitudes. Uh, it could be in an area of emotions that we've been defending instead of bringing to him. It could be in the area of finances. It could be in the area of sexual purity or sexual identity. Uh, it, could be, uh, it could be in the area of relationships, right? Maybe, maybe we've been harsh with our spouse or unforgiving for someone that's hurt or an area of bitterness. It could be in the area of ministry where the Holy Spirit's calling us to step out and start using our gifts in new ways and we've been resisting that out of fear or laziness or whatever it is. It could be in the area of sharing Jesus with others. And the Holy Spirit's been calling us to be more bold and we've been resisting that, right? It could be in a million areas. But the point is, is it's that Jesus is very gentle in the way he works with us, at least at first. He said, my, my load is not heavy, it's, it's light, my burden is light. But, but he doesn't work on all areas of our life at the same time. He, he just begins to, to gradually, like the sun, illumina area, and then gives us this opportunity to embrace the truth and to be transformed and changed and to grow. 
Let me give you a, like an example from my own life. It's a current example. Uh, last couple of months, I've been kind of memorizing and um, meditating on a passage of scripture in Philippians chapter four. So it goes from verse four to verse seven. It's sort of a, it's a passage that says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. But then the next verse says, let your gentleness be uh, evident to all men. The Lord is near, right? Let your gentleness be evident to all men. So, um, and so as I've been meditating on that, I've been reflecting on that. What is it like to, to have my gentleness be evident to all men? Because I think there's a lot of situations I would say that I am gentle, but I felt like the Lord was calling me to something more. That there, there are certain situations where I'm not gentle. It kind of reminded me uh, when I was in my doctoral course I had a, a course with Dallas Willard, and we, we lived, uh, about 25 of us, at a Catholic retreat center for a couple weeks, actually lived there, and, and, and Dallas would be there every day, all day, and have meals with us, and stuff like that. And I remember something that he said once, that is, I've never forgotten, he said, he made this statement, he said, there's nothing that you can do better with anger that you can't do better without anger. And I, I don't even know if I agree with that. But it, I've never forgotten it, right? Then it was kind of like that. And, and meditating is let your gentleness be of like always to all men. Like I'm still figuring that out, right? But I feel like the Holy Spirit was calling me to a new level of gentleness. And let me give you like three examples where I'm not gentle. One is at times with my wife. Right, so when, the times of my wife, like our brains work differently, we're very, we're wired very differently, and there's times where, where I'm explaining something to her that I think should be very clear, and it's not clear, and I, I get harsh, I, I'm like, like, it's just, it's like, what, don't you get, that? I mean, I just said that, right, when I, it's just harsh. Uh, here's a second time, I, I get harsh in the presence of incompetency, okay? Like, I don't know if any of you can relate to this. You're dealing with someone on the phone. You're dealing with a salesperson. And it's like, are you kidding me? You know, this is like crazy. It reminds me of that Seinfeld episode from years ago where he's going to, to pick up a car that he's reserved. And they don't have the car. And they say, we've got the reservation, but we don't have your car. He's like, that's the important part of a reservation, right? Right? It's like that kind of thing drives me crazy, right? Now, I, just, I don't go off the deep end or whatever, and as a follower of Jesus, I'm always trying to figure out, but it, these are times where it feels like, it feels like this would go a little bit better with some anger than not, you know? <laughs> I'm not really sure like where the line is, but I think it might go better. Here's another one. When I'm driving behind someone in the fast lane who's going slow, right? <laughs> this just irritates me. It's like... Did you never go have driver's training? There are slow lanes and there are fast lanes. And the idea is you stay in the slow lane if you're going slow and in the fast lane. And so um, it's just frustrating. The same thing like if people are in the, you know, the HOV lane, like going the speed limit. <laughs> like what is the point? Of going, if you want to go to the speed limit, you have four lanes to choose from. This is the lane for people who have more than one person who want to get somewhere faster. That's what this is, right? 
That's what this is. This is not for you to go 65 miles an hour. Like, if you want to do that, four lanes to choose from, all right? And so, like, when I'm in the HOV lane and people are passing me on my right, it's like, hey, you know. So I have these written rules in my head of how driving should go, right? Like, the first lane is the 60-mile-an-hour lane. The second lane is 65. The third is 70. The fourth lane is as fast as you want, right? <laughs> and you need to be in your right lane. And so, at this point, I... These are things that just get me frustrated. And I just feel like the Holy Spirit's saying, you know what, we wanna go to the next level here. We wanna free you from this anger in your life. We wanna free you from this frustration. And so, it's like that he's just shining a light there, that he wants me to grow in my gentleness to all men because the Lord is near. That's what the verse says. Isn't that great? Right? And we all, the point is we all have these things, right? They're, they're different for each of us at different stages in our walk. And, you know, maybe yours is stop murdering people. I don't know what it is, but, you know, <laughs> just start with the basics. Stop killing people, you know? Um, but I don't know what your thing is, but here's what I know is that when you follow the light of the world, he's always lighting up your darkness. One step at a time. And this is why my passion for you, it's not to fix your whole life overnight. My question is always like, what is the Lord shining his light on today? You know, like when we're, like we're in a message like this, I mean, I hope you listen and you take notes and it's like, like you're a squirrel getting ready for a winter. You're, 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 storing up, you're storing up nuggets for a time when you'll need them. But you know what the most important thing is when you're listening to a sermon? It's not just for all this stuff, but... What's the Holy Spirit saying to you now? What's your next step? Let me just take the next step. We'll be in good shape. We just take the next step. We're on this path of transformation. You know, one of my favorite authors, I kind of look at him like a spiritual mentor in my life, though, of course, we never met. He's from previous time, but Oswald Chambers. And he says there's a great quote there. He says, the golden rule for understanding and spiritual matters, like the key to understanding and spiritual matters, it's not intellect, it's not how smart you are, it's of obedience. Obey God in the thing that he shows you and instantly the next thing is opened up. It's like the, the rising of the sun. You just obey that next thing and then the sun continues to rise. He said, God will never reveal more truth about himself until you've obeyed what you already know. If things are dark to us spiritually, it's because there's something we will not do. And, and I believe for many believers that we, we've gotten off the path of the life a long time ago. And, and we're, we're just kind of circling our current location. We're not, we're not growing, we're not becoming, and the reason is, is because somewhere along the line, Jesus gave us the next step and we just, like I'm not going there. And when we do that, we, we get off the path to life. It's like we, we, take it, we take an off-ramp, the exit thing, and we just kind of spend our life on that, that location. We don't grow, we don't change. And so the question is, how are you responding to the light that God is giving you today? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the beauty of your word and in this context, I think of what the psalmist says, that your light, your word is like a, a light to my path. It's a lamp unto my feet. It, it, it illumines our darkness. And so, Lord, we pray today that 
as we come to these powerful teachings of your word, that you are the light of the world, you've come to show the path to life, and that as we believe in the light, trust in the light, follow the light, that we're changed, we become children of light. That you would speak to us each according to our need, that show us what the next step would be, and that we would not just take it for now, but we'd remember this, that this is all we need to do, is continue to take the next step into the light. And as we do, the path of the righteous is like the rising of the sun that becomes ever brighter to new day. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.